Well, uh, tonight we're going to talk about marriage. It's a conversation about marriage, and it's not, a, it's not a conversation about our desires for marriage, but what our desires should be for marriage. Uh, marriage is given by God. Um, and so we're going to see some principles and some purposes and some priorities of marriage. Did you get a handout? Did anybody not get a handout? Okay, good deal. Yeah, and take those to the back if you would, Nick. Thanks. I'm going to start our time off tonight by talking about a man who wrote a song, a song you know well. The song Amazing Grace was written by a man named John Newton, very familiar hymn writer. You know a little bit about his life story already, probably, that he was involved with the slave trade out of Africa. His life's journey was troubled and rough. At age 17, he was a foul-mouthed and rebellious sailor. At age 23, he was on a ship that was being broken up and nearly lost his life entirely. He himself, being totally broken, prayed and cried out to God and said, Lord, have mercy upon us. And he started thinking about Jesus, whom he had so rejected for so long. At age 39, at age 39, just 16 years later, he would be called into ministry in Olney of Buckinghamshire. He would become a pastor. And it wouldn't surprise you to know that at one point, in his sailing career, in his rebellious years, 17, 23, around those times, that he wanted to kill the captain of the HMS Harwich. He had been taken by the Royal Navy and put into servitude on this ship, and he didn't want to be there. And it might not surprise you either that there was a thought that restrained him. There was a thought that restrained him from killing the captain. If he killed this captain, it would mean his own death. And he didn't want news of his death to get to a particular set of ears the years of a certain young lady named Polly Catlett. He had met her when he was 17, she was 14, and he said of her this, he said, I was impressed with an affection for her, which never abated or lost its influence a single moment in my heart from that hour. Staying late to spend time with her, he would lose rank and status on his ships. When his ship was going to be extended overseas for a period of time, he deserted the ship and ultimately was dragged back onto the ship, fighting and screaming. After surviving his near-death experience, battered and broken, and even pleading to the Lord at age 23, this is six years later, the desire of his heart was to find Polly and to find if she was still available, should she wait for him, or was she married. You can imagine his joy to find that she had waited. They were engaged and married on February 1st, 1750, and they had a marriage that lasted 40 years till Polly passed away in 1790. 40 years. The Lord used Polly for many reasons in John Newton's life. Restraining him from killing the captain, being a thought and delight in his heart, being one on whom he had set his affections. Did God have a plan for this budding romance, this love? What was the purpose of their relationship? What was the purpose of their interaction and their engagement? Did God make men excited about women to tame their behavior? Is that the reason why we get married? To tame our behavior? Did God allow the marriage of, of, uh, to Polly to bring joy because he would get something from her? Get a housemaid or a housekeeper or a caretaker? Is that what marriage is about? 
Was their marriage based on social or economic status? They had to be put together because two large families were needing to unite, and so these two were going to have to get married for that purpose. What is the purpose of marriage? Or was their marriage explicitly about having children? Or was their marriage based on sensuality? She's good-looking, she makes me feel good, and marriage will afford legal and guilt-free sexual gratification. Maybe some of, of these are the reasons why some of us in the audience have gotten married. After all, these are common reasons, are they not? They're common reasons. And you can add to this list getting married to get a bargain, getting married to become happier, to feel more fulfilled, to remove social pressure, or to fill a void that you feel that you have in your life. Where these purposes for marriage are common, they are not biblical. John Newton may have had some of these same reasons in his mind his reasoning for marrying Polly, but ultimately the purpose for marriage are far superior than these common purposes because the purposes for marriage are biblically based. And so we need to go to the scriptures and extract from the Bible why, why marriage, why the union of a man and a woman. So what are the biblical purposes for marriage? And as I ask this question, there might be some of you that are very excited to find out wow, I've been married for 40 years and I finally get to realize what this thing has been all about because it's been a mess. <laughs> you get to understand. But the excitement won't be in, in, in getting more information. The excitement should be in getting the truth, the truth about marriage, about your circumstance in life, that this thing that you chose. Because chances are you have had, as Paul Tripp calls, with regard to marriage, you have had unrealistic expectations about what you can get from marriage, about what you should expect. Unrealistic expectations. Maybe marriage started off with something semi-reasonable, you know, something half-decent or half-biblical. But over the years, you've lost sight of any kind of purpose. And all you have now are unrealistic expectations. Hey, that's not uncommon. That's really not uncommon to, have, to be lost in yourself with unrealistic expectations about marriage. So let me take you inside the counseling room. Let's go and, and uh, open up chapter one of the book, What Did You Expect? by Paul Tripp. I recommend this book to you. Listen to this exchange between Mary and Sam in the opening pages of the book, What Did You Expect? by the author Paul Tripp. And as I read and, and share this exchange with you from this counseling session, You tell me what dominates this conversation. Is it a biblical purpose in marriage, or are you hearing unrealistic expectations? Okay, here's the exchange. Mary starts out, and she says, I just didn't think it would be like this. She looked completely exhausted and defeated. Sam just looked angry. He didn't want to be with me talking about his marriage to Mary. In fact, if the truth be told, he didn't want to be married to Mary. He'd had it. 15 years, 15 years, and this is what I get? Mary refused to answer. She just sat there and sobbed. Look at what my hard work gave you. No one you know lives in a house like yours. No one you know has the things that I've provided for you. No one has had the wonderful experiences around the world I've given to you. But no, it's never enough. Mary, I'm tired of your constant complaining. I'm tired of your daily criticism. I just don't want to do this anymore. And frankly, I don't think you do either, Sam said as his voice trailed off. Which dominated Sam's conversation with Mary and Paul? Biblical purposes 
or unrealistic expectations. Obviously, right? Let's list, though. Let's list some of Sam's unrealistic expectations from that one exchange. He believed that his hard work gave stuff to Mary. Not just stuff, but good stuff. His hard work gave good stuff. He believed that a house would satisfy a wife. He believed that things that no one else was able to do would satisfy his wife. He believed that wonderful experiences would satisfy his wife. In fact, every sentence that he spoke included unrealistic expectations. Every sentence. Because they all came out of Sam's wisdom. Sam did not speak biblical wisdom, nor did, he speak, nor did his speech conform to biblical purposes. You know what's odd is that if they're in a biblical counselor's room, sitting with a, a Christian, a biblical counselor, what's the likelihood that Sam's a Christian? I, I think it's likely. He, he went to Paul to get help. I think that it might be likely that he's a Christian. But if he is, right, if he is, if Sam claims to be a Christian, what should he be feeling after he's said all this stuff? What should he be feeling? Yes, and? Yes, and? Remorse? Right. These are the feelings that a Christian would feel if they went through a counseling session and opened it up by saying these things. And when you don't know the biblical purpose for marriage or the biblical purpose for your life, for that matter, you will ultimately feel shame, guilt, and remorse. So Sam needs what you need. He needs biblical purpose for life. He needs biblical purpose for marriage. So biblical purposes for marriage. Let's consider four biblical purposes for marriage. That if we know them, they will help us to never speak like Sam did to Mary. The first purpose in marriage. The first purpose of a biblical marriage is this. It's companionship. Companionship. This is an easy one to figure out. You just start reading your Bible, take it, turn it open to the book of Genesis, and you start thumbing through there. You read chapter 1, you read chapter 2, you come across God making Adam. And it's not too long after that that he has to make a helper suitable for Adam. He wants to give him something. None of the animals were suitable helpers. And in Genesis 2.18, God said this, It is not good for man to be alone. Then God set out to make a helper suitable for man. Marriage is from God. It is companionship that man needs. It's assistance that he needs for trials and difficulties. Companionship does not mean these things. It doesn't mean uniformity, which is the loss of individuality or identity. God didn't make us to be clones. Your wife is not your clone of you. Differences are expected. In fact, differences are appreciated. And what companionship does mean is this. On the positive side, it means comprehensive unity, complete life partnership, commitment to sacrifice in order to share. Unity, partnership, sacrifice, commitment, sharing. And in what ways are marriage partnerships sharing and sacrificial? Well, one way would be intellectually. Couples share thoughts, ideas, insights, and opinions. They sacrifice any selfish ideas or ambitions that they have that would reduce unity or partnership. So they share intellectually in their companionship. Their companionship also involves sharing desires and feelings, affections of their heart. They share joys and sorrows, griefs and pain. This creates great opportunity for sacrifice 
because you get the chance to lift burdens off of your spouse's shoulders to ease their pain or to increase their joy. Companionships involve sharing. It involves sharing social relationships. From close friendships to relational activities, social relationships. Couples get a chance to be hospitable. And you think about hospitality. Do you know what that is? It's the sacrificing of their own together time for a greater purpose, to call others into fellowship. That's what hospitality is. So social relationships. Companionship gives us that chance. Companionship also involves sharing work. We share the workload from household chores to generating income. It creates a dependence on your spouse. You lean on them and they lean on you and you can count on someone. Companionship involves sharing spiritual life from prayer to church to Bible study, watching your spouse grow closer to God. Your spouse becomes your best counselor because they know your habits and your patterns. They're in the best place to offer correction to you and to confront you in your sin. Companionships involve sharing, sharing in aspirations. What do you want to do with life and where do you want to go? This is the setting of goals, making plans to buy a house, to have children or to do both. So companionship becomes the first purpose of a biblical marriage for all of these reasons. Because there's an immediate recognition that life was not meant to be done alone. God said it was not good. We are dependent on relationship with God and close relationship with others. And in this case, a particular other. Second purpose in marriage is this. This is a big one. Characterization. Characterization. What is characterization? Well, from the dictionary, it's portrayal, description, or picture. Okay, so what kind of picture, portrayal, or description is marriage? What is marriage a characterization of? What is marriage a picture of? What is marriage a portrait of? Anybody? Christ in the church. Give me another one. I'm looking for two. You got one. 50%. That's a failure on a test, by the way. So if we're going to go, the other one would be, oh, 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 God and Israel. The relationship that God has to Israel. Number one, God and Israel, his chosen people. And number two, Jesus' relationship to the church. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54, 5. Isaiah 54, 5. So you got those two. God's relationship to Israel and Jesus' relationship to the church. Specifically regarding God's relationship to Israel, as you turn to Isaiah 54, 5, his chosen people, many, many places in Scripture give us imagery of God as the husband of his chosen nation, Israel. Consider the imagery. Jeremiah 3.20. Surely, this says, I'm, gonna read, I'm reading from Jeremiah. You're turning to Isaiah. I'm going to get to that passage. I want you to listen to Jeremiah, though. Listen to the way that this that the Word of God shares this relationship with us, the way that God describes this. He says, he says to Israel, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have treacherously dealt with me. In the same way that a wife would leave her husband, you, Israel, have left me, God. So you treacherously dealt with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Okay, now you're in Isaiah 54, 5, and look at this direct statement. It says this in Isaiah 54, 5. For, this is God, through Isaiah, speaking to Israel. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. 
And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. You see that? For your husband is your maker. God has an incredible relationship with Israel. He chose them, and they have acted like a harlot to him over the course of the time that he has walked with them. He will, though, ransom Israel. Has he ever forsaken them and left them dead? He's always had a purpose for them. He's always left a remnant. Okay, so then turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. So that's God's relationship to Israel, right? We looked at that, God's relationship to Israel, and we said there's, there's a husband-wife imagery, a picture, characterization there. Now we're going to look at Jesus' relationship to the church. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is addressing husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. He has specific desires for husbands and wives and how they're to conduct themselves. You know this passage well. Please look down at chapter 5, verse 24. He says this, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. The church and Christ pictured as wives and husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, that's powerful imagery. Christ and his bride, me and my wife. If that's the standard, that's the gold standard. That's way up there. And if I'm supposed to do that, that's a tall order. Do I get to take a pass on that one? Do I, can, I, can I pass uh, jail and, and go back to go and get $200? <laughs> no, that's, that's the command. That's what you're after. Look at verse 31. He throws, he throws out the quote from Moses from Genesis 2.24, and Paul says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So marriage between a man and a woman is a picture, a portrayal of a divine even an eternal relationship. Is this, is this crackerjack marriage? Is this crackerjack box marriage? Is this open up a crackerjack box and find a plastic ring? And Is this pretend? Is this fake? Is this phony baloney marriage? No, this, this has eternal implications. This isn't kid stuff garbage. This is, this is the mind, the divine mind of the living God of the universe. And he's saying, that the way that Christ relates to the church is the way that you relate to her. And the way that God relates to Israel is the way that you relate to her. That's powerful. That's heavy. And that is why marriage as a picture is of such great importance and takes the number two spot as the purpose of marriage. Characterization. So we've got companionship and characterization. So what's next in the way of purposes for marriage? Companionship, characterization. The third purpose in marriage is intimate union. Intimate union. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. I want to read from there in just a second. Intimacy has greatest and fullest fulfillment in the Trinity. We have a triune God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is the best and most perfect and complete representation 
of union, of intimate union. Three distinct persons sharing perfectly in one essence, one nature. That's our God. In the human experience, intimacy and union are physical and sexual, as well as emotional. And this is to the praise and glory of God. There's no shame in this, only the brilliance of the design and the intent of our God. And yet, there's no shame only if sexuality is used on God's terms and by God's design. True sexuality is the union of a covenantally united man and woman. Any other sexual union is fornication, which is wicked rebellion to the plan of God and will face God's judgment and wrath. Men and women who make a covenantal commitment before God to each other will have intimacy and union. Their affection is not selfish, but it's, it, rather it is a concern for the well-being of another, a chance even to demonstrate affection in mutual satisfaction. Mutual satisfaction. That's what we're headed for. So you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 7. And, and this is a, a, a very necessary passage because God knows how He made us. Paul knows how God made us. Our desires are not a surprise to Paul or to God or to you and I, and they're not vulgar either. And I want, you, I want to read this passage and share this with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to the wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexuality and a need for intimacy are part of the human condition. It's holy, it's right, it's good. Union, intimacy, sexuality. And as a result, physical union becomes the third purpose in marriage. And it's a wonderful purpose at that. And then we move to a fourth purpose in marriage. The fourth purpose in marriage is fruit. Fruit. Clearly, God has a great purpose for sexuality in marriage. Procreation, right? The making of children to meet God's objective. That he said over and over again in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is one true blessing and direct cause of the intimate union that God wants for men and women. It's a direct cause. So kids are fruit, and they are proof of the purpose of marriage. But is fruit just one component? Is fruit just children? Absolutely not. We're looking for other fruit also. Marriage proves to be an unbelievable atmosphere for incredible fruit in the way of sanctification, the fruit of sanctification, the setting apart, the making holy of a human life. When you learn how to speak truth and love to your spouse, it's at that point that you will be growing up in every way into Christ. That's sanctification. Marriage really helps you with the idea that you need to put off the old self and the old man and the old ways 
that you need to be renewed in your mind and you need to put on the new man, the new self, made after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Marriage makes moments that squeeze the sin right out of you. And as we talked about before, when God squeezes your heart, it's a very clear opportunity to see what's been filling your heart because your heart is like that sponge. And marriage gives these opportunities every day for the sponge of your heart to squeeze out whatever's in there. And if your heart is filled with holiness, righteousness, the word of God, fellowship, love for one another, for the brothers, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, then when marriage squeezes your heart, when, when, when your wife doesn't have the laundry done and you don't have a pair of socks on Monday morning, you don't have to slam your dresser drawer closed to wake her up and let her know, I want my socks. Sanctification says that there's a better way. Sanctification and living in holiness with your spouse says that you can put on the socks that you had from yesterday, that God didn't rip you off. He didn't rip you off in giving you this wife. That there is a better way. And sanctification will happen in marriage because all of these opportunities, from socks to the kitchen table to you leaving your shoes at the entryway to uh, the way that she doesn't clean the car after being outside for a long time with the kids, all of these things are going to sanctify you. And they're going to cause you to see what's actually in your heart. Did you fill your heart with motor oil? Did you fill your heart with mud and dirt and yuck? Are those the influences that you allowed in? Because when God squeezes, what comes out all over your spouse? That which fills your heart. Marriage is about sanctification. As a spouse, you become an instrument in the hands of the great Redeemer. God using you to sanctify your spouse and to be sanctified through the marriage covenant. Okay, so with this, we have our four purposes for marriage. We have companionship. We have the characterization that of the union of God with Israel and Christ with the church. We have the idea of intimate union, and we have an understanding of fruit, not just physical fruit in the form of children, but this spiritual fruit in the way of sanctification. Okay, so let's move and let's talk about two priorities of marriage, because if we're going to have sanctification, it's, it's going to come with these two priorities being met. What are the two priorities of marriage? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2.24. We've talked about it a little bit, but let's just go ahead and read it together. Genesis 2:24. We can just look right at the pages of Scripture and see how early on this comes for you. So your Genesis 2:24. This is called the marriage two-step. It's a little dance, a little marriage two-step. The dance of marriage. It begins here with leaving step number one and cleaving step number two. Genesis 2:24. Read it with me. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So step number one in the two-step of marriage, the priority, it's a priority, by the way, leave, leave. Step number two, cleave. Matthew records Jesus having quoted Moses' words in Matthew 19.5. Paul, we just read that in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 31. He, he quotes this as well. So What does it mean? What are leaving and cleaving, and why are they important? Well, first, let's look at the negative side of of leaving and cleaving. So leaving and cleaving doesn't mean these things, okay? Leaving, Leaving and cleaving doesn't mean breaking off all prior relationships with parents, siblings, or anyone else. It doesn't mean that. You're supposed to keep those relationships intact. 
But there's a, there's a whole paradigm shift that you have to understand. And we'll get to that. So, but it doesn't mean breaking off relationships. Further, it doesn't mean the end of responsibility for caring for your family. And you understand that from 1 Timothy 5.8, when it says that if you don't provide for your household, which would necessarily include extended family and your parents, that you're worse than an unbeliever. So we provide for our family. So it doesn't mean the end of responsibility for caring for family. Third, it doesn't mean geographically distancing yourself. You don't just get married and then run away. You don't have to do that. Although there are many times where this is really helpful and even necessary because sometimes mom and dad are just too close by and it's too convenient. But here is what leaving and cleaving does mean. It means that each spouse must leave behind your dependence on mommy and daddy, whether emotional, financial, or otherwise. Leave behind your dependence. Further, it means to leave behind your parents' temporal, God-given authority over you. Leave behind your parents' God-given authority over you. Leave behind also, leave behind any dependence on your parents' approval. You don't need to have mom and dad's approval on what you do with your life, with your spouse. You leave behind also, you leave behind the notion that mom and dad are your chief confidants. Do you know how destructive this is in marriage? Could you imagine if Well, and I guess maybe I'm talking to a room of folks that have had this happen. (laughs) If your spouse, every time that you got into an argument with him, went to mommy and daddy and told them all the challenges that just came out of your mouth that were presented to them, could you imagine the hurt and pain that that does? Does that really fix the problem? You know, there's there's an opportunity for a great separation. Does it mean that mom and dad aren't confidants? No, they are. Are they still sources of wisdom? You bet. But is there a context that needs to have its place in your life where you make this definitive line where we have left and we are our own people and I don't need to lean on that as a crutch? Well, further, you need to leave behind mom and dad's ideas about family structure and function. I often say that you need to look back. Once you get to 20, 22, you know, Mason, you're in the prime age of life to look back, look back and just think, you know, what did I see in the way of family structure and function? And if something wasn't there that was healthy, then where were you going to go? Where, where are you going to go to find something that's healthy in the way of structure and function? Well, yeah, you're going to go to the Scriptures, and you're going to find something that's healthy. So you leave behind ideas about the past, about family structure and function, and make your own. But do you just make up your own? No. You need to go to the Scriptures, because even if mom and dad were right in the way that they led you through your 18 years under their roof, even if they were right... You have to gain the conviction of what the scriptures tell you about family structure and function. It can't just be, I took your word for it, and I'm going to put that into my life. It needs to be, I dug into the scriptures and found what God's word says, and then I made that the resolve of my life. Big difference. The carryover versus the getting down and getting invested in what the scriptures say. Okay, so that's what you leave behind. That's the leaving part. Now we're going to move into the cleaving part. And, and right out of the gate, the first thing that you have to cleave to, cleave. Yeah, it's leave with a C. Yeah, cleave. That's probably an old King James reference. Leaving and cleaving. So you're going to cleave, which is to cling on to, to hold, to grasp, to, to pull in tight. You're going to pull in tight 
your mate. You're going to pull your spouse in tight. That's, that's who you're going to cleave to. That's first allegiance goes to this one and no other. Cleave to your spouse. This means a changing in the relationships that you have with a lot of other people who you've cleaved to throughout your life. And rightly so. It's a necessary shift. Cleaving to um, peer relationships with mom and dad is something that will have to change. You can cleave, though. You can cleave to peer relationships with mom and dad. Not an authoritarian relationship, but a peer relationship. You see that? Mom and dad are peers now. They're like brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Further, you cleave to responsibility for life and decisions. You cleave to the idea that now you're responsible. This is why it's so important for a young man who's in, in the house with mom and dad to leave the house, to have time away from home, away from the shelter that mom and dad create for him. Because how is that young man going to care for a woman if he's never cared for himself outside of mom and dad's home? He needs to have a chance to pay the bills himself and understand how to live and navigate life himself so that she would even find him desirable. It'd be awkward to have, have some woman find a guy desirable who's living inside of the shelter of mom and dad's house. How many gals are attracted to that? But if a guy is outside the house, living on his own, walking with the Lord rightly, paying his own bills, providing an income for himself, and then being able to be generous with others, that actually looks a, a, attractive to a young woman. And it's actually reasonable to her parents that he could actually sustain life with her. So you cleave to responsibilities for life and decision-making as a young man. You cleave to those, and you be responsible. You cleave to viewing your parents as advisors. You cleave to biblical standards for life and family living, which is to go and search the Scriptures, grab hold of what it says about life and family living, and own it and take it into your heart. And you cleave to your mate's opinions, insights, and concerns as the most important. You need to retire the service of mom and dad and retain the wisdom and influence of mom and dad where it's profitable. You get that? Retire the service of mom and dad, but retain the influence and the wisdom where profitable. Okay, so next, after we've looked at the priorities of marriage, which are two, right? Leaving and cleaving. Big themes. You know, from the biblical counseling world, those are two big words we hold on to fast. They're so necessary. We're going to move from the priorities and from the purpose. We're going to step into the purity in marriage. We want to talk about the purity in marriage. I want you to listen how the biblical commandment is laid down for purity in marriage from Hebrews 13.4. It says this in Hebrews 13.4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In order that we keep purity in marriage, we must have a commitment to purity in three areas. Three areas that need purity. The first is behavior, the second is affections, and the third is thoughts. Behavior, affections, thoughts. And if you look at me, I would describe it this way. Behavior is what I'm doing here with my hands on the outside, what you see. I do it with my feet, with my hands, with my eyes. That's behavior. Affections is what's happening in my heart. If you were to cut me open and look at my heart spiritually, what, is, what are the affections of my heart? And thoughts are what's, what's being allowed to race through my mind as I'm talking with you. So we need purity in behavior, affections, and thoughts. In our behavior, because we need to exercise control over the members of our body. 
from our eyes and what we see, to our hands and what they touch, to our feet and where we let them take us. We must be found above reproach with all of these with regard to our behavior. Next, regarding our affections and purity, these are our desires, the things that are on our heart. Our primary affection must be Christ. It must be Christ. And from this affection will flow springs of living water. It is only from this primary affection for Christ that we could ever have a proper affection for a spouse and and not have an improper affection for other things or other people. So affection for Christ is going to lead and yield affection for a spouse. This will bring purity to a marriage. And lastly, for purity, we must be pure in our thoughts. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know that very well. But I want you to consider the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. He says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With my whole heart have I sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. For purity in marriage, we follow the same process as the young man would in Psalm 119 by receiving the word of God and treasuring it in our hearts. This will cause us to walk in purity in our relationships and particularly in our marriage. But why the demand for purity? Why? Well, the demand for purity comes from this. It comes from the permanence of marriage built on the preeminence of God. The demand for purity comes from the permanence of marriage, which is built on the preeminence of God. And this will wrap up our, our conversation about marriage, is this topic. You see, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And I'm not using that word lightly. I'm using that word in a very strong sense, very intentional sense, because it matches covenantal language that God has used in His relating to human, human beings over the course of creation. The spoken word and the solemn bonds of a man and woman, spoken to each other and spoken before God and others, they create a covenant. Covenants matter to God. Remember, our God began making promises in Genesis 2 with His word, and He said to Adam that if you eat of the fruit of the tree, it'll bring death. And in response to that rebellion, God did exactly what He declared. He said it with His words, and then He did it with His actions, and He kicked them out. But then we have the promises of God in Genesis 3, that even in the midst of punishment, even in the midst of their rebellion and their hard-heartedness, God gave the glorious promise of Genesis 3.15 when He said that the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head. That's an incredible promise. God made that promise to humanity, to mankind. Noah received the promises of God, first to bring judgment and a flood on the earth, and then after judgment, the Noahic covenant, where God said, I will leave my bow in the sky, and never again would he flood the earth. By the way, has he ever flooded the whole world in its entirety before? Or after, since that time? He's never done it, has he? So he honors his promises which is to say he honors his word. God keeps his word. And so we're supposed to be like God, right? Be holy because I'm holy. So he honors his word. Then we look at the the covenant making that God did with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant. These incredible promises of people, land, and kings, 
all on the basis of God's grace, just abounding grace that he flooded out at one man. And Abraham was found to be trusting God, believing that God would fulfill his word. We could go on through the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. God makes huge promises to David. A child would come to be a forever king. And we have that forever king in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to be the forever king and affected the new covenant, bought in his blood, the covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31, 31. God is a promise maker. God is a covenant maker. You speak with your mouth the promises, and then you back up your words with actions, and that's what God has done. Marriage is a promise. It's a covenant that demands your soul, your life, your all, because it perfectly matches God's plan. This is the permanence of marriage, that marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant. And just as God's covenants are permanent, so too the marriage covenant has the same kind of permanence. We need to think about the marriage covenant with the same kind of permanence. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Jesus was tested by the Pharisees over his understanding of the permanence of the marriage covenant. They wanted to talk about divorce options, and he didn't give them wiggle room. Read the passage with me from Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3 says this. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. God hates divorce. Divorce is not the design. Divorce opposes righteousness in the fullest expression of grace which takes us back to the relationship that God had with Israel and Christ with the church, a relationship loaded with grace. Healing and reconciliation are available. If it were not for the hardness of man's heart, it would always be the case that every marriage would endure. God expects permanence in marriage. Next, you could turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. The Lord is speaking to Israel here through Malachi. And the idea in this passage that I'm going to read is that the Israelites are sad. Why are they sad? Well, they're sad because God stopped listening to them. They wanted God to hear their cries. They were throwing themselves on the altar and pleading with God. But God had reason not to listen to their crying and their whining. So they ask, why? Why won't you listen to us? And he responds. He responds in in full force. Read this passage with me and let's consider the answers that are given to why God didn't respond. Malachi 2.13. 
God says to Israel, this is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord, uh, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Again, God hates divorce. God won't listen to them. He won't listen to their whining and crying when they have dealt treacherously with their wives. Notice also, your wife is your companion, right? There it is. Your wife is your companion. That's marriage purpose number one. And we also said that marriage is a covenant, and here it's spelled out clearly. Marriage is a covenant. It's a companion, and it's a covenant. Vile and foul treatment of your spouse in marriage is loathsome, despicable, hated, and detested by God. You know, Peter picks up this thought well when he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Oh, he knew the idea that God will hinder your prayers if your relationships are treacherous with the wife of your youth. You know, I find this incredible and entirely powerful. You know, here's God shutting down the vertical relationship because of the way that men foul up the horizontal relationship. Do you see that? He's shutting down the vertical because you have so viciously treated the horizontal. God is not expecting that you leave and cleave for your own benefits and only when times are swell oh, I'll leave and cleave and love you when times are really good and we've got lots of money and we've got property and possessions and everything's going well and I get to do whatever I want to do. God doesn't want that. God expects covenant faithfulness at all times. And you hear this in the marriage vows, right? Through thick and thin, through rich or poor, for better, for worse. You know, this should make us think, why would that be the case? Why, why the demand for covenant faithfulness through thick or thin, rich or poor, for better or worse. Doesn't this go back to that picture, to that characterization, that characterization of God's relationship to Israel and Christ's relationship to the church? God is on display in a healthy and intact Christ-honoring marriage. God is on display. And God is concerned about His image and His reputation. This falls right in line with the commandment to be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Also Leviticus 19.2 and Leviticus 27, be holy, for I am holy. It is the preeminence of God that is at stake in marriage. It is the desire and necessity to have God's perfections exalted through a human covenant powered by His Holy Spirit. 
and where a marriage will magnify God and declare the preeminence of God through Christ-like behavior and mutual affection and love, guess what you're going to find in that? You're going to find joy. You're going to find joy abounding. And permanence at that point will be easy, relatively speaking. I love God's plan for marriage. I rejoice to hear the stories told of covenant faithfulness in marriage. 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and more. It's such a blessing to see a covenant be honored. You know, it's for that reason that people will come into to counseling and they'll talk about their spouse and they'll share with me frustrations and concerns. They'll even rail and, and rage against a spouse in counseling. How easy am I to say, okay, sounds like this is over. Why don't we just go down to the courthouse and file divorce papers? Is it just that easy? No. That would be total failure on incredible number of levels. Because what we're focused at most is that you held someone's hand and made promises and commitments to them in front of other people and before God. And then you physically, covenantally united intimately your bodies with one another. And you have a union that is special to God. And he wants that union honored. Because in that union is a beautiful picture of his relationship with humanity, with Israel, and with the church. And, Christ, and Paul says it's a mystery, but it's a mystery that we know exists. And it's a mystery that has God's reputation and character at stake. And for those of us who want to live to the glory of God, then we need to understand how marriage fits in God's plan. And we need to exalt marriage to its proper place and pour our efforts, our energies, and our resources into our marriages because a healthy marriage has so much opportunity for the kingdom of God to offer service to the building of his church. That's what we want from marriage. Four purposes in marriage, four purposes, companionship, characterization, intimate union, and fruit. Fruit in the way of children, sure. Fruit in the way of sanctification. We do marriage, the, the marriage two-step, which is the leaving and cleaving. How many times in scripture? Over and over and over again. Leave, cleave. We look for purity in marriage and our behavior, our affections and our thoughts. And finally, we consider the permanence of marriage built on the preeminence of the character of our God. That's what's at stake in our marriages. God must take first place in all things. With that, I'll pray. We'll have a time of some questions. Father God, I'm so thankful for an opportunity to speak about marriage and to talk about how you want this done. Lord, we are blessed, many of us in this audience, blessed by marriage, blessed by the opportunity to be sanctified through marriage, to grow in our understanding of you through marriage. You have wonderful things that you're doing in marriage, and you have such an incredible purpose. I know you are the God who heals marriages when two people, two wicked sinners, are focused on bringing glory to you. And yet you will use that marriage to sanctify them, to yield glory for yourself, and to, to be a real treasure for them, a source of great joy and hope. I pray that you would do that to all the marriages here in this audience and for those at Berean and for your whole church in all the world. Lord, let us be husbands and wives who honor one another, honor your covenants in the covenant that we have made with one another. Bless this time and this, this word going forward. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.